Now, time for another essay from the creator of Thick of It. Facts and Fancies by and with Armando Iannucci A Life at the Opera Opera is the coming together of music, theatre, design, people and coughing in the greatest synthesis of art capable of collapsing at the beep of a watch alarm. It's man's highest creation, his most expensive assertion of artistic supremacy over the inferior beasts and birds of nature, who, proficient though they might be with sticks and spittle, can't perform tricks as staggeringly complex as mounting a three-act declaration of love from a wooden castle. Foxes don't sing, and leverets are incapable of costume design, so they needn't bother trying. Armies of termites, though they try impressing us with their 20-foot-high mud constructions, haven't a hope in hell of building anything out of wet dirt as architecturally elaborate as a publicly funded opera house, with its dazzling honeycomb of boxes and its awesome web of sturdy crush bars. Have I made myself clear, animals? We're better than you, so go back to doing what you do best, which is sniffing at bushes. This is what opera is. It's the rustle of programmes and clack of glass cases of several thousand people anticipating grandeur. A few of these people are celebrating their birthday. Many are romantically involved with others in the audience. Some are dying. Several are currently being burgled. One or two are planning to run away tomorrow. Five have grit in their eye. One lost her dog to a temporarily out-of-control recovery vehicle that morning. More than you think are currently passing on an unpleasant dietary virus to their neighbour. Over a third will find the whole evening didn't quite match their expectations. The conductor was knighted five years ago for making terrifying demands on his horn section. Is a single man, dedicated to music and bitterness, secretly nurturing a reputation for shambolic jacket-trouser coordination to procure that title of genius which the newspapers have so far forgotten to award him? has the pervasive breath of claggy mint gums, which he regularly puffs across the violins and cellos, who call him menthol Mickey in T-bar rehearsal breaks. He comes on. The audience now applaud the respect and admiration the orchestra fling at him in his pit. From this underground nerve centre, he bobs his little white ground-levelled head round to smile at the line of eager and disappointingly shod feet he's playing to in the front row stalls. As the applause dies, he catches sight of a slightly furled sticking plaster, jammed under old tights and badly masking a moon-shaped scab on a thick leg, and turns to start the music. Music. Strange this, coming from under the stage, and for the first ten minutes all we've got to look at is a heavy curtain with the crest of a crowned unicorn mounting a heron. But the first notes strike us as lovely, and we start giving the experience the benefit of the doubt. Meanwhile, the burglars jemmy their way in through an upstairs window and start looking for the video. The rustling in the circle falls to a minimal patter as the music swells. People do hold their breath like they're meant to. The one individual is just frozen in the sudden realisation she forgot to book a clown for tomorrow morning. The Prelude to Tristan and Isolde. It lays before us the themes which will dominate the evening's performance. Wagner's peculiar chord near the start, pinpointing everything from Isolde's doomed love for Tristan to Tristan's extraordinary annoyance at having his emotions jerked around by somebody's love soup, crowded onto a little blurt of sound which the programme note tells us turned the music industry upside down. For years after the first performance, people went around whistling the Tristan chord, which they would normally have to do in groups of seven, or on their own if they happened to have a uniquely damaged mouth. The music continues, and menthol Mickey's arms form spindly shadows on the front curtain, attaching giant black rotating antlers onto the head of the raped heron. 
This is passionate music now, and the sound from the orchestra slushes and glides around in a slowly blossoming wallow. The audience make last-minute assessments of near neighbours, calculating from the frequency of coughs and the guest texture of the liquid mix jumbling around inside whether the offenders are having a final clear-out or are digging themselves in for an evening's Flemish sabotage. This uncertainty threads uneasiness through a few minds, one of which now fills with pleasing images of the gentleman two rows in front having his mouth stifled with a trumpet and a hammer. The music reaches a peak of intensity, symbolising Tristan and Isolde being at it like knives, and three rows from the back, inside a small woman, on the upper row of her gums, four in from the left, a tooth begins to hurt. The tooth was attended to yesterday, and didn't like the experience, and has now decided to give his owner a little nudging reminder of what he can do when he puts his mind to it. I dutifully masticate for you, my lady governess, he professes, and I yield to your brushing and scraping without qualm or worry. I sit guard for you all night, and I endure deposits of nut and tomato skins with openness and true hospitality for these, my new visitors. And lo, you reward me with drills, and my payment is needles. My heart is hollowed out, and filling composite occupies my soul. Is this, then, how my service is spurned, O wicked lady? Am I an outcast on your gums? Then I shall make known to you the vent of my fury, by summoning the twang of my brother Root and sister Nerve. Feel you now the power of my anger? This is not to the suffering I can assemble if you shame me with full purpose. His owner makes a mental note to book a further appointment. The music diminishes and the curtain rises as the thieves find the video and start disconnecting the aerial. In a house four miles away, a professional clown who had been expecting a call that day sets off disappointedly for a walk in the night, realising the tomorrow morning which he'd provisionally set aside for work will now be wasted. This is the fourth disappointment in as many weeks and propels his mind closer to thoughts of retirement. The curtain carries on up to reveal the drift of the evening. The arrangement of shapes and colours on stage will determine whether the audience smiles at the welcome arrival of an old friend or frowns in anticipation of an evening blighted by modernism, like a dinner spoilt by a daughter's art school boyfriend. This evening falls somewhere in between. Familiar bits of building and rampart are hung in a peculiar combination, one man is upside down, but the settings are shatteringly far from the Cornwall of the original story. Act 1 takes place in a European sauna. It's apparent the audience will have to do some work for their average of £34. And over there are the soloists, Isolde, bound against her will for a forced marriage with an enemy despot while illicitly harbouring unrequited love for her father's killer, and her trusty maid telling her it could be worse. As they sing and towel themselves in the shadows and beautifully lit darknesses of a guarded steam room, it's clear this evening we're going to be in the company of an Isolde who is colossal. Opera can be unkind to the massive. It thrives almost exclusively on prolonged demonstrations of love and captivating beauty, yet has constructed traditions of vocal power and range which demand these love anthems be projected from a big chest. Bulky singers have to fight against the obvious stupidity of the undertaking by producing sounds which transcend girth and hoping to God the director doesn't ask them to roll around on an upstage forest glade. This is the governing doctrine of our highest art. Later, we find that Tristan too is colossal, so the love story does at least carry some conviction. Whether that's enough to conquer the mounting ludicrousness of the artistic proposition offered this evening will take at least another four hours to determine. Despite some knowledge of the music, despite even a familiarity with the peculiar habits of opera, 
there is still a detectable, sniffable gas of suspicion wafting across the audience that they've paid to watch a huge bad thing. Apart from the disgusting size of the participants, a hundred other points of absurdity produce dangerous sparks. That faint creak and wobble of the scenery, the thickening grills of sweat down Isolde's back whenever she sings near charcoal briquettes, the sometime written randomness of the melody, the moment when Isolde's maid snagged her scarf on a small handle jutting from a boat at the back of the stage made from fridges, those points of loudness and loftiness of pitch which unavoidably turn into a pain shrill, two thousand knees are briefly tensed, that unfortunate play of light and shadows which at one point projects onto the backcloth a silhouette of Tristan, short and stumpy save for a pitilessly elasticated stomach. The evening could go up in flames at any moment. And yet the music just about banishes that threat. Out of passages only moderately captivating come regular bursts of overwhelming glory that grab concentration, dim pulsing teeth, usher someone away from thoughts of baking, another from planning tomorrow's elopement, a third from still-felt contempt for his doctor. As the sounds soar and mingle perfectly, the evening makes sense, the stupidity is forgotten, and the burglars and the rain and the hundred cars outside and the fight forty yards across the street and the disgruntled clown and this morning's news about the Egyptian president and the pictures of his collapsed bike are now nowhere and then someone sneezes which is when somewhere in the middle of act two in a radical switch to the American Midwest we return to a stage full of big people and pappy mashy cacti. The evening twos and froes between these two states of appreciation the music constructs an opera of ideal beauty and total tragic conviction, while our eyes apprehend something tiptoeing on the borderline with the abysmal. These two forms happily gallop in parallel, but occasionally merge in magic moments of believability, when for a brief second the only thing that seems real is an enormous couple singing German laments about fatality while wearing Stetsons and rejoicing in love at a Kansas rodeo. Once the magic is dissipated by the drop of a purse or the demented half-time rush of the parched to the interval bar, like bison to a breeding ground, leaving Tristan behind, now kebabbed on someone's spear to start dying in German out of everyone's hearing, slowly fading while tethered to a still-moving mechanical bucking bronco, it's easy once again to gaze at watches and flick through programmes and to take in wider views not only of the stage but of the conductor's feverishly bouncing head demanding adoration from a bassoonist being slowly suffocated in a cloud of stale peppermint and wider still to see the patchwork of cemented haircuts along the front rows and gaze up to the sides of the building, noticing the boxes from which people view events from a severe angle, and to wonder what the Queen makes of all the performances she's forced to see, bent round at 79 degrees, and whether she remembers the evening not for what she saw on stage, but who she was staring at across the theatre. What must life be like when viewed constantly from a right angle? Does the Queen grow up thinking that all playwrights stage dramatic action to take place out the corner of one eye? Does she have her favourite sides of actors? Does she consider Shakespeare to be her greatest slanty dramatist? Has her right ear grown to twice the size of the left one? Funny things, ears. Two gnarled flaps of flesh hanging from the face, like skin from an old pair of cheeks retrieved from the waste paper basket for alternative use. Starched face flannels. The only parts of the body to look like Ireland. Which is better than looking like Egypt, which surprisingly is almost completely square. All that history and culture, stretching back a considerable number of millennia, squeezed into a country with straight sides. Why doesn't its borders bulge? Scotland's had less history, but it's got burst edges like Kennedy's head in Dallas. 
And now Egypt's president has a punctured head too, and the whole world woke this morning to pictures of that flattened bike and wondered how such a freak accident could have occurred and why the keepers at the zoo had been so lax. God in heaven, that music though, familiar and twisted into cliché through overuse in romantic films and ironic underwear commercials, here suddenly seems shocking heard for the first time, magnificent as Tristan lies dead on a seventeen-foot-wide buttercup, and Isolde chats musically about love and dying, and movingly sings, oh dear, and it thrusts and soars up again, and sounds obviously obscene, and dies to a trickle, and once again everyone has forgotten everything, but now the applause reinstates normality as the cast bows to mental Mickey, and someone hands a basket of flowers to Isolde, who looks not the slightest bit surprised, but would be, you think, if they handed her a basket of scampi or a live chicken. And already people are leaving, and the bitter tooth throws another tantrum, and the singers come on just one time too often, and the applause sounds shirty now as the theatre empties, and the burglars accidentally tip over an ashtray which deposits stains on their shoes, helping police establish their shoe size, leading to the arrest of one of them and his imprisonment for eighteen months in a cell half a mile away from this building, where he listens to a recorded transmission of this evening's performance because he likes opera. And that's what opera is, and this experience is exactly the same for millions of people all the world over. Papal Blues Lyrics from an imaginary album Track 8 My clergy's done left me, my bishops look confused, I've no sons and daughters, and I've got the papal blues. All alone in these apartments, making edicts by the score, when all I want is you, babe, this pope's sure feeling sore. You're the brightest babe in Rome, girl, and I've got the whitest smock, I saw you from the balcony as I stood to bless my flock. But you turned and left me, honey, and went back to your hotel, now I'm scattering impure thoughts across my monastic cell. The papal blues done shake me, send a fever cross my brow, cause if those bishops knew my sin, they'd start a holy row. So I'll shut St. Peter's church, girl, my evening prayers I'll cancel. Instead we'll dance in my basilica and tango up the chancel. I'll sit and make you flowers carved from candle wax, and thread you fine necklaces from martyrs' bones in sacks. We'll kiss through Armageddon and prance till the end of time, choose judgment day to wed on and damnation for a fine. I'm celibate, but I'm through with it. I've got enormous papal blues. So get your ass here quickly, girl, and sit on my don'ts and do's. Armando Yanucci's Facts and Fancies was produced by Jonathan James Moore. And next week, Armando turns his attention to dictators. This is the Comedy Club. The Comedy Club. The Comedy Club. On the BBC Radio 4 And now we join 21st century wizard Mordrin, who's determined to go a-wooing. Ages come and go. The dawn of time was a long ago, and the universe continues to expand at the speed of light, and possibly even faster than that. Few can harness this immense energy. Few can experience its true power. Few bar wizards. Wizards live amongst us, righting the wrongs of society, watching the world through eyes of sorcery, and guarding the planet from every possible kind of demon. This is the tale of the UK's 19th most powerful wizard. This 
is the legend of Modern MacDonald, 21st Century Wizard! Check out my new app. It makes my photos look dead old and vintage. It's not quite magic, but it's pretty nifty. Episode 4. The start, the middle, and the end of time. I'm in a good mood today, and it's all because Heather and Aidan have decided to take a break. They were reaching that stage in a relationship where they get so comfortable around each other, they maybe didn't watch what they say so much. Before you can say, I don't really like cats, you're on a break, so now's my chance. I'm off to the cafe to woo her. Don't know how you woo exactly. Might not woo when I go in. I might you-hoo first. You-hoo! Modron! Hello! Uh, oh my! Why do you look like you're auditioning for a Gap advert? I noticed you said auditioning there and not starring in. It's Heather here. Oh, she is now. Oh, hi, Modron. Whoa, look at you. Out with a cloak, Heather, in with a snug-fit T-shirt. What do you think? Mm, I always thought you looked most dashing in your magenta cloak and hat. So, what'll it be, Modron? Actually, I wondered if I could tell you something. Something I've wanted to tell you for a long time. Something kind of secret. Heather! Aidan! What are you doing back here? Well, I had to pick up the invitations to the party. What party? Our engagement party. I thought yous were in a break. <laughs> I suppose we can laugh about it now. <laughs> I realised why we fell out. We're different, but we're in love. I'm Yang, she's Yang. I'm a dog person, she's a cat person. I'm the sun, she's the moon. I'm chalk, she's cheese. I think you'll find you've been the cheesy one. Camembert level, I'd say. Here's your invitation, bud. Jess plays this Saturday, 